just ponder that for a second because our world is influencing us and I think Satan who's the god of this world influences us so often to say go for the gusto get all you can can all you get take charge take over be in control of your own destiny and the scripture says we need shepherds do you believe personally and I ask myself this question as well Do we believe that we need spiritual leadership in our lives? I met with a guy uh, this week for counseling, and he's pursuing marriage. He goes to a different fellowship than this one, but he's pursuing my leadership in his life, and I just began to pull, you know, pull apart his life in front of him as a 22-year-old, just saying, hey, you know, have you considered this? Uh, What are you doing in terms of your job and your future, your dreams, your aspirations? Do you believe you'll be able to provide for your own household? What if you get married and your wife gets pregnant, you know, soon after? How are you going to provide for your children? Have you thought through these things? Where are you spiritually? And then it dawned on me that I perhaps was one of the first person, persons in his life to be asking him such pointed, deliberate, adult, spiritual questions. And I asked him, I said, Do you, have you ever had anybody in your life kind of one-on-one ask you these questions? And he just said, you know, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home, my parents somewhat, but, but no, I, I haven't. I thought that is crucial for this young man that he is mentored and that he has a spiritual leader. And where are you in that regard? Do you believe that you need shepherding in your life? I mean, we're all called to exercise our spiritual gifts and participate. We've talked a lot about that in terms of being the church, but I want you to just think in this dimension. And if the answer isn't yes, then perhaps you have the wrong perspective about where you are spiritually right now. Because as I contemplate my own soul and my own heart, I know my temptations. I know my frailty. I know my personal weaknesses. Do you know yours? I think sometimes because we are so confident in our salvation at a point in time, sometimes we give ourselves so much credit in regards to the security of our eternal destiny that we forget how weak and frail and sinful our hearts really are. Um, This weekend, yesterday, I put my wife on a plane to go back east um, to be with her mom at bedside because her mom... My mother-in-law is dying of congestive heart failure. I don't know if she'll make it out of the hospital or not, but as you know, we went there um, earlier this summer, had a wonderful time with her when she was in better health, but we were projecting that you know, this would be sooner than later the end for her. And godly woman, she's got great hope in Christ and all will be well. But Judy's going to be with her and doing the right thing as a daughter and to help and, and be part of that experience. But it was a reminder of me about how frail our physical heart is here on earth. I mean, you know, for the most part, we enjoy health and life. But, you know, life is short and suddenly... Something can come up, cancer or heart disease or anything or, you know, a tragic accident where life is just taken quickly 
And it shows how frail we really are. And I think sometimes we we get so confident even in our physical health that we don't think about how frail we are. And in the same way, we don't think about how if we begin to diverge from the gospel, if the wheel is turned one tick to the left or to the right, that we could go off of the narrow path into false teaching and to the detriment of our own souls. We could make decisions that would be anti-Christ or anti-church, anti-gospel. We could make decisions spiritually that could impact our children in bad, harmful ways. And it's that fragile. One reminder of uh, the fragility of our spiritual life was, remember Peter, the spokesperson for the apostles, the leader amongst leaders, Jesus' right-hand man? Well, in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus began to talk about going to the cross, he said, I'm going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, verse 21, and be killed and on the third day be raised. What did Peter say? Peter took Jesus aside, and this is the word. He rebuked Jesus. I'm going to rebuke the Son of God right now. Now, Peter is thinking, hey, I'm in Jesus' court here. I am looking out for his best interest, and for some reason, the Messiah has diverged off track and thinks that he's going to allow people to kill him. Wrong, bad answer. And so I'm going to take Jesus aside and shepherd him for a second. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, what is Jesus' response? It's acute, it's clear, it's direct, and it's powerful. He says, and the author, Matthew, says he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, was Peter Satan in that moment? No, but Peter was espousing what Paul calls the doctrines of demons. In other words, what Peter was saying in terms of a temptation to Christ, an external temptation, Christ is sinless and perfect and impeccable, and I believe he couldn't sin in that moment, but in the humanity of Christ, which is full humanity, he's receiving an external temptation from his right-hand man saying, Jesus, no, don't go to the cross. You'll never do that. I'll die for you. You're not going to go to the cross. Uh, Send me instead. And, And Jesus sees right through that and says, that is of the devil. Because remember, Jesus is following the will of his father to go to the cross, to lay down his life as a shepherd for the sheep, to save people. And Peter is going in the face of that, flying in the face of that. And Peter's motivation on the surface is good, right? He wants to save his friend from death. But really, it was all wrong and it was fleshly and satanic. So I just throw that out as sort of food for thought because listen we are weak and frail and we can think that we have the best intentions in the world and by contrast hurt people spiritually that's why we need shepherds I need to be shepherded by shepherds I need people in my life speaking into my own heart because I could be thinking I'm going the right direction and suddenly veer into the wrong direction and I need biblical buoys and boundaries to bang me back in the center so that I can walk the narrow road and persevere in gospel perseverance. Well, you know, I don't have to share too many of these with you, but there are some examples of people that I have mentored, that I've watched derail themselves spiritually. Have you ever mentored somebody or, or one of your children that you thought was so 
well spiritually, suddenly they're diverging off the path and you're going, where is this coming from? I have. I've seen people walk away from the faith who've been in spiritual leadership where a crisis will hit them. I knew this one couple. They were sort of the premier student body president and, you know, the, the, his girlfriend, and they got married, and they were part of a Christian college, and he went into ministry, went to full-time pastoral ministry, and he felt like he was burned by the senior pastor, and suddenly they're out of church, and they're doing cyber church, you know, online church, and then no church. And there are a bunch of people that just look at them and go, man, that guy used to preach, he used to do this, that, and now they're just... Not affirming the faith. I mentored a guy personally one time who his whole Christian life was bound up in controversies. He always wanted, he wanted the Mormons to come to the door. He was like, ah, I'm ready for him, right? He would read the Book of Mormon. He said, I wanted to read it so that I could say to them, have you read your Book of Mormon? Because I've read it. And one time I remember mentoring him and talking to him, and we had this very pointed conversation where I said, listen, do you realize that every time we get together, all you want to talk about is conflicts and controversies instead of growing in grace? And ultimately, this guy, he went to a theological seminary that wasn't holding the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. He diverged off the path, and his sister suddenly died in a car accident, and he was vulnerable. He was wide open, and this guy, he just went dark. He just just started to digress, and he was a pastor, and he was marrying homosexuals, and he was sort of going liberal. And and then, then the last I heard from him, he had written a blog that said, this is my untestimony. He talked about how he left Christ and left the church and how the church had done him wrong, and now he's not a Christian. This is the fragility of our spiritual life. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation, but I'm saying that people can go off the path as Christians to those levels, and people can find themselves to be apostate where they were never believers in the first place. And the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, not to mention First John, Second Peter, Jude, the Gospels, they all talk about this dilemma where you have people who come into the flock and from the inside they want to add something to the Gospel or take something away from the Gospel to make the teaching in the church unhealthy so as to divert people off the path. That happens all the time. I think a lot of times we think, well, that's just for the cult groups or something that's very clearly not Christ. No, people come inside and they promote a teaching that's against the sufficiency of Christ where they teach a Jesus plus something else gospel, whether it's Jesus plus religion, Jesus plus, uh, you know, doing the right things or eating the right foods, or not eating certain things, or, you know, people will add the subtlest things to the gospel, or join this political party, and you're more spiritual, be against that political party, and you're more spiritual. There are a lot of versions of a Jesus plus gospel, and when this begins to rise to a level where it influences a great number of people, that is false teaching within the church. The sufficiency of Christ is the gospel. The personal Christian life where you say something like this, where you say, look, I'm weak, I'm sinful, I'm frail, I'm vulnerable. I have nothing but Jesus Christ that's going to get me through the next day. 
And Lord, it's only by your grace alone that I ever was saved in the first place. I deserve hell. I was headed in that direction, but it's by your grace alone that I'm saved. And I need you, Jesus, to get me through another day. I don't need my boss's affirmation. I don't need my friend's affirmation. I don't need my parents' affirmation. I'm not going to be an affirmation junkie. I don't need, you know, my approval for how I'm parenting. I don't need to rise in a career to make it through the next day. All I have is Jesus Christ and him alone. That's the gospel. That's sound, healthy doctrine where it's just Christ alone. That's how you make it. And the subtle temptations are to want something else in your life to make you whole, to make you healthy, and nothing else will. Nothing. And when you have Christ alone as your sufficiency, literally the word contentment in Philippians 4, it's, it's a bizarre word, but it can be translated self-sufficient. And it's the idea that you are whole within yourself with Jesus alone. That's the idea. Much or little, whatever happens, I've got Jesus Christ and him alone. I'm naked, I'm vulnerable. It's Christ alone. He is my source of salvation. That's the gospel. And when that's the gospel and that's happening in your life, you're strong. And that's the message for which we need shepherds to call us back to. We need each other and we need spiritual leaders to help us. And that's sort of the message of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Just uh, by way of review, turn over there to 1st Timothy. We, we were looking at the role of a shepherd and, and one that's qualified by 1 Timothy 3, also Titus 1, these qualifications, talks a lot about the character of the man who is the spiritual shepherd, overseer, pastor, elder. But also, we talk, we've talked about 1 Timothy 3, 1, the, the will to do it, the desire to do it. And then we talked about 1 Timothy 3, 2, that this man of God needs to be a capable student and teacher of God's word. They, they have to be known by the book because this is the shepherd's crook. This is um, what helps the sheep stay on the path and think about Christ's sufficiency alone. And last week we talked about temptations that come up where Satan will try to tempt us in terms of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and how false teachers use these satanic temptations to get us off track from the sufficiency of Christ. We looked at last week a couple of these temptations, one from 1 Timothy 4, which is the temptation for control, where in religion and religious teachings, people say, ah, don't get married, or you should get married, don't eat these foods, eat these foods, and you're going to be more spiritual and how this is confronted with the sufficiency of God in the gospel. We talked about how money can be a temptation. A subtle lie number two, money will buy me happiness. If I get this promotion, if I just make 20% more, then I'll be happy. And that's the idea that's found in 1 Timothy 6 of godliness as a means of gain, how money becomes involved in our godliness. And that's another satanic lie. And then subtle lie number three is the lie of sensuality. And we touched on this last week, but I'm going to park here for a moment. And that is 2 Timothy chapter 3. So turn in your Bibles there to 2 Timothy 3. This is the false teaching that you can love pleasure more than God. You can be a hedonist who says, look, I know I'm married, I know I've got children, but that person over there, I need to involve myself with that person emotionally or physically, and that will make me whole in this life. That will satisfy me. That will, that will make me whole. 
And if you don't think that that's a real dynamic, just look around at marriages, look around at scenarios. This happens all the time. Satan is alive and well, and he wants to destroy marriages. And it's not just the man that gets led astray along these lines. Oftentimes, it's also the woman who's allured by a relationship with another man. And sadly, even, um, you know, like gender relationships, you, you have these scenarios in our culture that are alluring people away. 1 Timothy 5 talks about the widow who's lost her spouse, who shouldn't be called a widow indeed yet because she's still under 60. And the recommendation is get married because you could be led astray by Satan. And literally, the example is being led away by your own pleasures and sensuality. And so... This is a real temptation that's in the church, and it's, and it's founded in false teaching. Is Christ sufficient or not? That's the question. When posed at the crossroad of, am I going to go away from my spouse or not, and go towards this person or not, go towards the internet or not, go into cyberspace sin or not, the question is, is Jesus enough for you? And the answer, my friends, is he is. He is sufficient. He is all you need and unless i marginalize someone who has fallen prey into this sin jesus is your sufficiency to get out of that sin as well if you're ensnared in the sin of sensuality repent because jesus is waiting for you with open arms to heal your heart and perhaps rescue your marriage first timothy chapter three this is the culture we live in look at this the last days it's now it's since the times of christ verse one there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Now look at this phrase right here. Here it is. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I want this, I don't want God. I want this, I don't want God. I want this person instead of God. That's what's going on. That's the temptation. Now, the people who are leveraging this are the false teachers, verse 5. These are the ones who have imbibed these temptations, these lusts of the flesh, lusts of the eyes, boastful pride of life temptations, and now they're teaching it. Look, verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them, look at this, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. Let's stop there. So the modus operandi of this particular scenario with a false teacher would be a false teacher creeping in. The picture is like, you know, the mouse or the rat or the cockroach coming in through the shadows and invading the home by stealth getting into the personal business of a woman who is called a believer here, a redeemed daughter of God being invaded personally by a false teacher who's enticing her by sensuality. Saying, listen, you think your life is in despair. You're literally burdened by sins. You don't have answers. Your husband's not helping you answer the questions about the sins that are hanging against your heart, weighing you down, I can unlock the key to your heart's desires and make you whole, make you happy, make you satisfied in this life. You think women get vulnerable like that? Yeah, they do. 
especially ones who are already falling prey to legalism, thinking religion is the way out. They're burdened by sins. Their mind is diverted away from the grace of Christ and they're living weighed down. And then somebody enters in and says, look, I have the key. I can answer all the questions that you have. And then this false teacher with eyes full of adultery causes the woman to sin. Now, I've seen this happen. Um, when I was an associate pastor in another state, I was um, you know, part of the lives of many families there. And one family in particular, I knew very well. I'd been in their home. I knew their kids, had their kids in children's ministry, five children. The husband was going into ministry. He was going to seminary at the time by extension. Um, the wife was kind of a, a homeschooler who did very well with her kids. And all the T's were crossed. All the I's were dotted. Um, she had, you know, kind of this control mentality over her situation. And I think that control became a temptation and she wanted to find affirmation through her oldest son and her oldest son was a great pianist he was very smart and he was probably 11-ish maybe 10 or 11 and she um, sort of conscripted or or got her son into a, a piano teacher relationship with this guy who was the premier piano teacher in the state that I used to live in, and, and she, it was at the college, and, and she connected him to this college piano teacher maestro who was also a Mormon, and then the piano lessons went from the college to his home, and so suddenly she was bringing him to the home of this pianist and building a relationship, and it was all in the name of how good her son could be and great potential that he had, and they built a relationship, and she, she began to bring his favorite pies over during the lesson times. And again, the husband's allowing all this to take place, but this man began to allure her into a relationship, and he began to also bring Mormon missionaries over to watch the piano lessons. And so she was buying into Mormonism and she was beginning to read online about Mormonism and trying to make parallels between true biblical faith and the cult Mormonism. And and so what happened is that some women in our church saw this relationship was forming in an unhealthy way. They actually had their, their last son and the middle name of this son that she had with her husband was named after this man. So he was involved in the family. He started to come on um, family gatherings and even going to the fair together with the family, building a relationship with the husband. But he was creeping into the heart of this woman to lure her into Mormonism. And so we're sitting there at church in this confrontation intervention time where the husband's there, the wife is there, there's kids playing on the floor, there are women crying in the room who are saying, listen, this is an unhealthy relationship. We don't know how far you've gone. We've read some certain things between you two and we're concerned, we're begging you, flee this relationship. I'll tell you what happened. In the context of that discussion, there were elders and pastors in the room. One spiritual leader stood out to me and he said, listen, we can't tell this lady that she needs to separate herself from this piano relationship because look, it's, it's a, like a coach. It's a coach of a volleyball team, a coach of a soccer team, a piano teacher. You can't sever this. We can't take that step and intervene at that level. And I remember being there as a pastor going, no, this is, this is first, this is second Timothy. This man has creeped into her life and into her heart and she is about to blow up her marriage. 
And it was awful. I mean, we were quoting scripture. We were trying to gently lead her, but there was a conflict in the room. And ultimately what happened is, is she went into Mormonism. She was baptized in the Mormon church. She divorced her husband. She took her kids away from her husband. And I don't know what happened since then. But this is real. This is not something that we should mess around with because, again, the New Testament is replete with the... the the danger of false teaching and what we have to avoid. We have to shepherd our own hearts and we have to shepherd each other. And husbands, you've got to shepherd your wives and protect your wife from sinners like this, from false teachers. Let's go on a little farther. Verse 7, always learning. This is the false teacher. Never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jamboree's opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This Janus and Jambres, by the way, is an allusion to Exodus chapter 7. Remember, Moses was told um, to go and confront Pharaoh with Aaron. And when Pharaoh's heart was hardened, the miracle that was to prove the power of God in the moment was for Moses to, to throw down or have Aaron throw down his what? His staff. And it was to become a what? A serpent or a snake. And that happened. And then there were sorcerers and magicians called into the room by Pharaoh. And probably Janus and Jambres were these two who threw down their staffs and they too became serpents. So it's like, look, you're no pow- more powerful than we are. But then it says explicitly that Moses' staff as a serpent ate the two other serpents whole. But I got to read to you Exodus 7, sort of the punchline here, because it shows the, the subtlety of sin and the hardness of heart. Exodus 7, when this happened, it says, verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Listen, false teachers are not those who are listening to God's word. Their ears are plugged. Their hearts are hardened. I think a lot of times we, we want to convince people who are, who are false teachers, who are hardened in heart, that the power of God is real. And so we, we stay close in these relationships when at times we need to distance ourselves and even distance our spouses from those relationships. Please be on guard. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And perhaps the Lord is working in your own heart and your own life in terms of a relationship that is unhealthy that could pull you away. Now, am I saying we shouldn't witness to people? No, we should. I was at the Alaska Club, uh, I don't know, this week. And, you know, they have the pool area and I have my kids and they, you know, they get, I put them all in life jackets now so I can throw the water polo ball back and forth to them and do all this stuff. And, and, uh, and I sometimes go over to the hot tub and sit in there. And it's funny, people will sit in a hot tub and they are more disarmed than any other time, you know, uh, in their week. And they'll talk about anything. So there's this guy, and I know he's a Mormon, he's part of the Mormon faith, and he has adopted several children from China. So his story and narrative is always this oh I'm so overburdened by these kids I adopted them and woe is me and they're you know they're crazy and look what they're doing and I I just looked at him and finally I'd sort of had it up to here because we've talked back and forth a lot and I know where he's coming from and I just said look these children that you have they're precious do you realize what you have? They are such an awesome possession, you know, to have and, and to nurture these children. They're wonderful. They're so beautiful. And, and he said, well, you know, I'm going to raise them Buddhist. 
And I said, so you're postmodern. And again, I'd had it up to here. I said, so you're postmodern. And he's like, no, no, I'm not postmodern. I said, aren't you Mormon? He's like, yeah, 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 but I'm going to do this. And I said, well, you know, in essence, do you know what God's word says in terms of the gospel? And we went from there and talked all through the gospel. But I mean, you can take a relationship like that, but so far, and you have to guard your own heart as you give the truth to people. That's all I'm saying. And I want to move on to one more section in Scripture, and that's Titus chapter 1. Sort of to close off this, this discussion about spiritual leadership. It's so vital, it's so crucial, and Titus 1 picks up right where we left off in 1 Timothy 3 with the qualifications of an elder, and then it goes from the qualifications, the character of a spiritual leader, to the work of the spiritual leader. And the work comes down to handling the Word of God rightly. Verse 5 of chapter 1, Titus 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then it goes through the qualifications. We've been through these. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, which literally means while they're in the household, they are believing in the gospel not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, greedy for gain, but a hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, I just have to say, listen, to be a spiritual leader, this is a high standard, but it's not unreachable. These qualifications are really what every Christian should strive to be like. And if you're not falling prey to satanic temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, if you're humble about your life and growing, you'll see these qualifications work out in your life. I mean, you don't, it's not a call to, you don't have to take a spiritual pilgrimage to Mecca or Israel or do this. You don't have to have some supernatural vision. No, it's just you have to be living the normal Christian life. And Paul left Titus here to finish what Paul had started. He had been to Crete, this small island south of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. He was wanting Titus to set things in order for churches to thrive. And he said, so you got to find men in a, in a kind of a you know, rabble-rousing, you know, gravel town, island. Uh, you got to find some men who are fitting these qualifications or growing in this way to lead churches. And so he had to appoint men that way. But the work that these men need to do is what I want to focus on, and that is verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I gave the message, uh, you know, first hour, and someone came up to me and said, you remember that scenario about that lady who was being wooed into the Mormon church when the room divided where one of the spiritual leaders was saying, you know, we can't really go there strongly and sort of backed, made some room for that woman to keep going in her direction, that's where the, the fight was lost because the scripture says you've got to take this thing head on. You have to rebuke it. When it's clear like this, you've got to rebuke it. And I was also reminded of Galatians um, where in the epistle of Galatians, Paul opposed who? Peter to the face and that storyline was that Peter suddenly was intimidated by the circumcision party, 
by those who are Jesus plus people saying you still got to be circumcised to be in the club, to be in the church. And he split, Peter split away as a Jew saying, I will not have table fellowship with the Gentiles. I won't eat with them. And Paul, knowing that's a gospel issue, said you can't suddenly teach a Jesus plus gospel with your actions. And so he rebuked him to the face. That's Peter again. Again, believers do this. We, we fall prey to adding something, even preferences to the gospel, and it takes our heart away from saying, all I have is Christ. So we have to guard and protect that. And so you rebuke people, those who contradict sound, healthy doctrine, verse 9, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, Jesus plus circumcision people. Verse 11, what do you do with these people? They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Teaching for shameful gain means their motivations are all skewed. They're superficial. They don't know the power of God. They don't know the power of the gospel. They may as well be Janus and Jambres doing mystical satanic arts in terms of their teaching, trying to lead people astray. And so they got to be silenced. The literal language there is their mouths need to be shut. It'll be shut. It's dangerous duty being a shepherd, but you got to do it. You got to stand guard and you're guarding people's souls, guarding their hearts. You're doing hard work. And in the mind your own business culture that we live in, that can be dangerous duty, but that's the duty for which we are called to be a part of. Whether you are a spiritual shepherd or just a friend of somebody, we're supposed to look out for each other to have each other's backs spiritually in relation to the gospel. Now be silenced. Look at verse 13. Again, the Cretans, you know, verse 12 talks about how they're um, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, but look at 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Now, that kind of popped off the page at me this week when I was thinking about it. You know, false teachers sometimes aren't all the way apostate. They're not all the way gone. In other words, you can pursue somebody that starts to teach things that are errant or add something to the gospel or take people's eyes off the sufficiency of Christ, and you can go after them and say, look, do you know you're off base? Do you know this sounds like you're, you're acting um, religious rather than in terms of a relationship with Christ. And by doing that, you can win people back. Oftentimes, we can't discern where someone is spiritually, and so we just have to be faithful to communicate the gospel to them, to confront people, to go after people, and it will steer people back sometimes. If you turn back with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's the instruction that Paul gives Timothy in verse 23. It says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know, that breed quarrels. Stop there. When people get all hung up on, you know, all kinds of different aberrant teachings, and these things you'll see in Christianity Today and different articles and different upstarts, you know, where there'll be conferences that'll invite a Jewish rabbi to a Christian conference, and they'll say, the Jewish rabbi, he really has the key that unlocks the Old Testament, and people will, you know, kind of get into weird mystical minutia of the Old Testament in strange ways, and 
All of that is this kind of stuff. Remember the Bible codes books that were out in the 80s or early 90s where, you know, this Hebrew letter, if you go diagonal and do the crossword puzzle this way in the Hebrew, then you find some answer. That's what Paul is saying. Look, avoid all of that. Avoid that weird stuff. And it doesn't even have to be that wacko. It can be strange debates that go on that people get all excited about. Let's, let's talk about, you know, this or that. And I got to tell you, I mean, people will come up to me even after church sometimes and say, hey, have you ever considered, you know, what happened to, um, you know, this or that in the Old Testament or, you know, when, when David um, cut off Goliath's head, do you know that his skull was found? I mean, you know, things like that, that, that oftentimes can lead people astray from what's sinner. And he's just saying, don't get into those kinds of things. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So literally, Satan can capture somebody, he can be a false teacher, he can be causing trouble in the church, he can be sharply rebuked and brought back center to focus on Christ. Now, back to Titus, though. This sadly isn't always the case. Talking about a false teacher, verse 14, um, there are those who devote themselves to Jewish myths. This is the myth that if you add something to your faith in terms of commands... Um, you can be right with God. Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Stop there. To the pure, all things are pure. You know what that means? To someone who's trusting in Christ and Christ alone, the simplicity of the gospel, they're pure. Now, they're going to still sin, but we're protected in that sound teaching. We're pure. But to the defiled... The person who is adding to the gospel, they're unbelieving and nothing is pure. Nothing's right. Their religion is worthless. It says, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Elsewhere, it says that a false teacher is like seared in his conscience with a branding iron. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. It's a sad commentary, and it shows you how bad it really can get in people's lives. What are we supposed to do? Chapter 2, verse 1 makes it clear. Again, what is the shepherd supposed to do to help this situation? But as for you, this is Paul's word to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Do you know the number one message that you can tell your kids as parents? That Jesus is all you need. The number one message you can tell your coworker who perhaps has been a long time person in a you know, aberrant teaching or a denomination that's not evangelical. Jesus is all you need. I mean, I thought about it. I was talking to that guy at the Alaska Club, and I was thinking, oh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not up to snuff on all my um, Mormon theology, so how can I help this guy? Well, the answer is tell him Jesus is all he needs. Let's talk about Jesus, who he is, who he truly is as God. Oftentimes, I think we get intimidated by people who come to our door or believe things that are different than the true gospel. Well, if you know the genuine gospel, just tell them, teach sound doctrine. And it's not just evangelism. It's also helping people stay on the path. Christianity is about staying within the buoys on the narrow road, believing that Jesus is enough. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to 
the cross I cling. Is Jesus enough for you? I hope he is because he, his sufficiency is what gets me through every day of my life. And I hope that's the same for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Lord, gathering in community with your word. I thank you for shepherds that are in our lives. Lord, we know our soul is fragile and we know that the gospel is all that we need. I think of the, the old statement of the elementary teacher that said, words are things, words matter. And Lord, we want to be nourished on gospel words, knowing that Christ is sufficient. Thank you for our gathering, and I pray that if anyone is in danger of going off track, I pray they would be um, prodded back on the path of Christ alone. Guard and protect our relationships, and guard our community. Let us be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.